0: Leadership is an extraordinary task. If you ask 10 people what leadership means, you'll probably get 10 different answers. And to lead people in any situation takes a lot of things. Courage, humility, tenacity, conviction, wisdom, the list goes on and on. Sometimes leadership means charging a hill through a volley of enemy fire and rallying your troops to follow. It means allowing your troops to eat first and you eat last. It means making hard decisions, even unpopular decisions. If you're not pissing someone off every now and again as a leader, you're just not doing your job. More often than not, the greatest leader is the one who's failed the most, who's made mistakes, learned from them, and got back on their feet. When asked for advice... Great leaders tell you of their failures and the lessons they learned more often than their triumphs. And through it all, it's a fighting mentality that pushes the greatest leaders through struggle and into greatness. My guest today is that type of leader. Dave McCormick is one of the most impressive people I've ever met. He's born and raised in Pennsylvania. He's a West Point graduate, he's an army officer. Dave is also a business leader who's grown companies and worked at one of the largest hedge funds in the entire world before being fired, only to return and become CEO. He served in the Trump White House. He narrowly lost the nomination for Pennsylvania Senate seat in 2022. And even then, he stayed in the fight. Dave is a leader and a fighter by nature. His new book, Superpower in Peril, A Battle Plan to Renew America, is a bold and thoughtful vision for how to move America forward and win the fight for our nation. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I give you my discussion with Dave McCormick. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Dave McCormick, welcome to Battleground. You are... You are fresh off a Senate race, and now you've got this amazing book out. It's called "Superpower in Peril," and man, I read it cover to cover. I think it's phenomenal. Um, so, fill me in how how has life been post Senate run? Yeah, well, th-
2: hey, Sean, thanks for having me. It's great, <laughs> great to see you, and thanks for uh, thanks for all your support during the campaign. You know, listen, it's been a, a whole new world for me because I haven't. Um, uh, I haven't not had a job since I was 18, <laughs> you know? And so my wife just said, okay, I think it's time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's time to get back to work. But uh, but the book has offered me an opportunity to really step back and, and think a bit. And, you know, I, I started the book a couple of years ago, uh, long before I decided to run for the Senate. And the book was based on my belief that the country was headed in the wrong direction and that we needed a positive vision uh, to take the Republican Party forward, and to take the country forward, mm. and that was honestly the same reason I ran for the Senate. So the book came before the Senate race, and the Senate race just reaffirmed everything that I was thinking, but it made it more tangible because I I saw people on the ground that were reinforcing what fentanyl is doing, or inflation is doing, or you know these terrible um, uh, policies that are taking our country in the wrong direction. And so, in in essence, the book is is a plan. Uh, for how to renew America and you know the uh there's no doubt we're in decline economically spiritually mm-hmm. from a national security perspective but decline is not inevitable it, it, neither is renewal it depends mm-hmm. on what we do and this book is about what we do by educating uh, our children it's about confronting china it's about securing America and um, it's been a great uh, great opportunity to, to really put everything on paper
0: yeah I like I said I I I loved it and you know I'm anyone that knows me knows that I'm a, a closet policy wonk. I, I do love and appreciate somebody that understands policy and so much about people, you know, so much about running for office is, you know, being inspired to do it for the right reasons, representing your constituents or your state. And I, what I loved about superpower in peril is that it, it blends your life story uh, and things that influenced you with the policy, uh, policy positions that you hold now. And I think you're going to be I think we're going to you're going to you're going to end up being in Washington some someday, Dave. And You're going to be I know that you're going to have a bold legislative agenda when you get there. But so much about it. What I like about this is you're not just a guy that's going down there that wants to go down there to lay on the railroad tracks and block productive legislation, especially if it's good for America. This book, it's it is a it is a blueprint, a pathway forward for this country to get us back on the right path. And you say something in this book, and I'm going to read a direct quote, Dave, because this is something that resonated with me deeply. We need a rebirth of leadership across government institutions and society. And that is the central focus of this book. And so I guess there's so much that I want to talk to you about, Dave, but this, this quote, how do we get there when like in a state in Pennsylvania, we elect a guy like John Fetterman who? I mean, I'll say this. He's been a trust fund baby his entire life, never really worked a day in his life and has done nothing in the private sector and worked almost his entire career in government. So how do we how do we shift the culture, Dave, and get in and get to a place where there's a rebirth of leadership across our institutions and in government?
2: Well, uh, yeah, thanks for saying that. I, I, you know, you are a great example of someone who also has served and been a patriot and, and, you know, thought about something bigger than yourself. And that's the first part of leadership is leadership Mm. is not about you, right? It's about others. It's about servant leadership and helping your platoon or your company or your country get on the right path. And, you know, I'm optimistic. The book's optimistic. If you look at the cover, the cover is pretty daunting. It's like red and you know, blue. and It's like, you know, America, superpower in peril, but, which is what I believe. I believe uh, we are in peril. But I also believe that uh, we can renew ourselves because that's the American story. You know, we've mm-hmm. done it over and over again. And I talk about it in the book. I won't spend too much time on it. But I, I'm confident about our future because I've been there before. I, you know, I'm, I'm older than you. I was I was 14, 15 during the, the, the final days of Carter. And it felt a lot like today. Inflation was going through the roof and gas prices. We used to, we used to have to wait in line. It was odd days and even days to buy gasoline. Jeez. And my dad had this huge station wagon. It was the country squire with like wood on the sides. And we'd <laughs> wait. We had to wait for 45 minutes to fill the gas tank. And we had Desert One where we lost uh, a bunch of servicemen trying to rescue our hostages from Iran. It was, a, it, was a, it was a travesty. And most Americans thought that the country was headed in the wrong direction, just like now. Most Americans, 80% of Americans think the country's heading in the wrong direction, economically, $31 trillion of debt, 40-year high in inflation, hmm. fentanyl crisis, open borders, China, challenging us. And so just like we did it then uh, with, the, with the rebirth of America under uh, under Ronald Reagan, we can do it now, different problems, different problems, different solutions, but the same issue, we need, we need leadership. And um, you know, if you think about Pennsylvania, but you think about 2022, you know, listen, we, have, we had two problems, in, in my opinion, but they answer your broader question. The first problem is we need candidates who can win primaries and win general elections, right? It's, yes. about, it's yes. about building a coalition of people who want to change the direction of the country. But you can't change the direction of the country without ideas. So we need ideas uh, and we need leaders who can win. And then we need leadership when they get there. and uh, And that's what this book is about. Here is an agenda. But an agenda of ideas doesn't mean anything if you can't get people. Uh, you can't get people to to lead. And I try to talk about that, as you say in the book. But I don't talk about someone who's like Mister Leadership. I get all the answers. I talk about someone who's been in lots of leadership positions and failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, you and I have talked about this. But I talk about being fired as the CEO of Bridgewater. That was pretty hard. You know, <laughs> I talk about struggling in the army, and then I talk about um, of succeeding but succeeding because of the experiences, the humility, the lessons that come with failure. And so I try to, it's kind of an open discussion about what it takes to to, to win and to
0: lead. Well, so Dave, talk, talk to me about that, because that, that was something that that struck me as, as very, very compelling just in your book, but also in in your bio. I think I read a piece in the post, because that about you that talked about being fired from Bridgewater. I think uh, you, you were you were promoted to CEO and then you were fired and then you eventually you rose to CEO again, right? Yeah. How, I mean, give, give me a window into your mind in that moment. Like you're told to to step down or they're firing you from being CEO. You could have taken your ball and went home. In fact, I, I bet you there's a lot of Americans that would have said the heck with this and done just that. But what, where were you on that? How did you, how did you process that how did you talk about it with your family and ultimately how did you end up staying the course to rise back up to become CEO of that company again
2: yeah well it's uh you know it's I think the context is you know, people describe my career and they go oh you know this success and that success <laughs> and they describe it like this, this straight line where things just always went up and what wasn't true there was lots of struggles along the way so I talked you know I was a yeah, I was, ended up being an all-state linebacker and uh, you know, I got recruited to play football. But I but I started as a bench benchwarmer uh, and, uh, you know, I struggled. Uh, I, I, I failed some things in the army and yet I was a very successful army officer. So and there was lots of years that, uh, you know, my dad and my brother used to get on the phone Sunday nights and, you know, I left the army. My dad was like, well, you're going to lose your retirement. What are you doing? You know, 15 more years, you have your retirement. And then I, I went to graduate school and I was going to be a professor and I, I, I uh, decided not to be a professor. My, so my dad would get on the, a phone Sunday night with my brother and say, um, what am I going to do about Dave? He, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have, <laughs> he's not clear on his future. You know, what's he going to do? And it, was, it wasn't until I was like 35 or maybe 40, my dad said, I think it's going to be okay. So uh, so it, was, it wasn't like I come into it, ranger school, all these things. I come into it knowing that the path to success is often through failure. Um, but then when it happens to you, you have to have this fight with yourself, the emotion of saying, oh, you know, it's unfair. I, you know, I didn't, you know, I, it's, I don't want to be treated that way. And your mind that says, okay, there's probably something to be learned from this. And, uh, and that's what happened with me where, uh, uh the guy who ran the firm, Ray Dalio, put me in the CEO job and he said, um, you know, listen, uh, 18 months into because you're not making change happen fast enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And I, my first reaction was to do just as you said, which is, okay, well, I'll go, I'll take my talent somewhere else. And I thought about that, thought hard about it. I, we had some family issues going on that I didn't want to move my kids. And I said, you know, I'm going to stick it out. And I stuck it out for a year and then things started to go well. And some of the feedback I had received was I wasn't changing things quickly enough. You know, I wasn't balancing all the advice from different people. And I started to really get my groove. And I started to really succeed, and I became the president of the firm, and I was really, you know, helping our firm grow and be successful. And then about five years later, uh, I was happy, and Ray came to me and said, "I'd like you, you know." And by the way, I still didn't agree with him firing me. I yeah. thought the way he handled it, <laughs> the way he handled it, wasn't right. But there was definitely lessons for me in it. And um, and he asked me to be CEO again. I said, "Yeah, I don't think so. I, you know, I, it's uh, I'm doing fine, and things are going well." And and he said, "What would it take?" And we talked about what it would take in terms of him stepping back, giving me the freedom to make the decisions I needed, the lessons I had learned. And we went forward on it and I became CEO for the next six years. And it worked out really, really well. But, uh, but honestly, in retrospect, it was a gift because I was a better leader because of it. The things he was pointing out, so I didn't think he should have fired me, but they were right. Huh. There was lessons there. And you know what ha- has happened, Sean? I am so much better dealing with people that are struggling now even the people I've had to fire myself since then, I've had to fire people that weren't succeeding. That's part of being a good leader is mm-hmm. helping people move out of jobs where they can't succeed. I'm so much right. better at doing that now. So I wouldn't trade it, but man, did it hurt at the time. It was in the newspaper front page of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> you know, this, is, this isn't fun. So uh, Selena Zito asked me this the other day. She said, so so you know, when you're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times about losing the Senate race, does that bring back some parallels? And it, you know, it does in the following sense when one door closes, another door opens and, um, you know, failure is part of life and failure is part of succeeding.
0: I I mean, when did you learn that lesson, Dave? Because it seems like as you talk about your path, uh, and where you are today and really living and realizing the American dream, that it wasn't a straight path, that all along the way there were pitfalls and there were failures. And it seems like what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, you're Life is, and the same is true for me. Really, is it, it's filled with failures. But I think what it boils down to is: Are you learning lessons from those things when you fall down? Are you picking something up when you stand back up and move out and you know move out and draw fire? Um, yeah. Like you went to West Point when you in 1983, right? Um, do I have that right? 1983. 1983. That's right. I was two. Right. So. I know you.
2: You. You. I knew you were going to bring that
0: up. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. I had to. I had, I to. had to. I had to. <laughs> I was two. But like I, I've toured West Point since, and I was an ROTC guy. And and I'll tell you, I having you know out Albatunas, they think on the curriculum now at West Point, which is just an honor of a lifetime. But I'll go there and talk to the cadets and do leadership seminars, small groups with them. And one of the things that I realized very quickly was that there is there's no way I could do it. Those kids are, are up at like four in the morning. Their whole day is structured, you know, structured study time all the way into the night. And I think to myself, like not only is there no way that I could do it, but these kids are, are special. Um, but also seem to be gluttons for punishment. Like you were right. Re- you were a wrestler prior to that. And I, and, and it, to wrestle, you have to be a glutton for punishment as well, because right. I wrestled in it and it was really, really, really difficult. Um, But was there a moment when you got to West Point? I guess, first of all, how did you make the decision to go there? And and number one, and the second part of the question was, was there a moment, like maybe it's on your first or second day where you thought to yourself, I immediately regret this decision? (laughs) Oh, lots of regrets. Lots of regrets. And still to this moment,
2: I say the best
0: best view of West Point is in
2: the rearview mirror. When you're you're going up over the mountain on leave for the weekend and you look back and say, oh, I got from Friday till Sunday morning. Or Sunday afternoon um yeah listen i it was the greatest decision i ever made and i almost didn't make it and the way it happened wow. was uh you know i'm like every pennsylvania kid i wanted to play football at penn state <laughs> yeah and exactly, so uh, exactly. you know, i had i had visions of uh playing football at penn state and uh and if i was going to wrestle i wanted to wrestle at lehigh so the two places i at lehigh at the time was a dominant absolutely
0: rep, right yeah nationally, absolutely top
2: right. 5 in the country and so uh Uh, So I was – that was what I was hoping for and I was applying to both places and I got recruited to uh, wrestle and play football at West Point. And uh, so I went up for a visit and, you know, I just saw the same thing you said. You know, I said I just don't think this is for me. Um, You know, I was looking for a little less monastic um, – you know, (laughs) four years. I I wanted to have more of a – That's what it's like. I mean that's what it's like. (laughs) Well, there's actually – there's actually across the the river, there's a – there's a um, uh, an institution where they train monks. And so, oh, you know, we used to say there's a lot of similarities because once you went to West Point, you were locked up there for uh, for four years for the most part. And the, the, the joke was, you know, they give you your privileges back, you know, uh, a, a day at a time, a, a week at a time. And by the time you graduate, you have the Privileges of any freshman at any other college in the country, but uh, but but I started. My, my dad said, and you know, I really thank him for this. My dad said, you do you have to make a choice which is best for you. The only thing I insist on is that you apply to West Point. And I said, okay, I'll apply. And so I applied, and I had no one in my 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 uh, family that had military experience. I had an uncle that had been in World War I. and <laughs> uh, so I had no connection. And I got in. To my shock, I got amazing, in. Amazing, amazing. Uh, and 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 Sean, it took on a life of its own. Someone sent me a newspaper article. It was in the it was in the local newspaper. You know, local kid gets accepted at West Point. It was the first time anybody had gone to an academy in decades. My town was probably eight thousand people, and it took on a life of its own. No one ever asked me, "Are you going to go?" It was like, "Of course you're going to go." This was, <laughs> you know, and it sort of just I just sort of settled into it. and Said, "Okay, I'm going to do this. This is a, a privilege and an honor." And I, you know, I did fine. I didn't love it most days, but uh, it taught me so much, and I, I feel so blessed. And then it opened up my life to, you know, a career that I would have never had otherwise. So, uh, but that's how it, that's how it happened. And the military, and you know this, Sean. I admire you so much for it. But the thing is, when you, you know, are in business and or even government, and you're in, you, you know, you're in Washington or you're in, you know, these business circles. And you ask, how many people in that room have served in the military? Hmm. Very few people.
1: That's right. Very
2: few people in the Accela corridor between Washington and New York have ever served in the, or even know someone who has served in the military. Mm-hmm. And when I'm, you know, where I grew up or if I'm on the campaign trail in Pennsylvania, everywhere I go, I, I said, who's been in the military? Who hasn't? It's, you know, this is a big part of connecting uh, and understanding what it is to be an American. And mm-hmm. so- I feel so blessed with it. And, you know, I was a sm- small town kid from Pennsylvania. My first platoon had a, uh, you know, a, a, a white kid from from rural Alabama. It had a, a, an African-American kid from Newark. It had a, my platoon sergeant who, as you know, for a new lieutenant, the platoon sergeant is, is everything. He yes. was a, a Puerto Rican guy who, <laughs> you know, was 35 and he seemed like 100 years old at the time. <laughs> you know, I was 22. And you know, you know what? And this is the. uh, I'll end on this point because I know I'm riffing. But no, I don't remember in my five years in the army, my four years at West Point. I don't remember. I don't even think I knew who was a Republican or who was a Democrat or who was a conservative. Same. same. You know, it was just about our country and being part of a team. And by the end, you would have, you know, you would have gone into and, and did go into fire. To protect that kid on your right or your left, you didn't you didn't know anything about them other than they were part of that team and we were all committed to the to the mission of one another. And that's the thing that I got out of West Point in the military. That is the it's the gift of a lifetime, and I would would never trade.
0: I mean, I think you're I think it's so powerful because that's what I took as well from my experience in the military, Dave. And that and I think, you know, we talk about the Virtues of Diversity, and I mean, every business in the world talks about it now and how that's one of our greatest strengths as a country. And I, I agree, but I also say that that's po- just part of the answer. I think right. what makes America truly exceptional, and I saw that exceptional nature reflected in the eyes of my troops on the battlefield, is that it was really not just how diverse my platoon was because we had guys from everywhere. As you said, right. we, it sounds like you had a similar experience, but it was The fact that we were able to, as Americans, look past all of our many differences and unite behind a common mission. And that has been, I think, for me anyway, Dave, has been, I mean, really the foundation of what it means to be a servant leader and that leaders focus on first, last, and always doing everything that we can to bring people together, regardless of where we come from. It doesn't mean we always get it right. Um, No way. Yeah, I um, totally agree with that. But do you think that that because like, clearly that's shaped who you've become, Dave, and and so much about your experience at West Point, and then leading men in combat, and 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 being a platoon leader, and you found you find yourself CEO of one of the largest firms hedge funds in the world, but you also founded companies here in Western Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh, Free Markets, right? Um, yeah, and I didn't found it, but I was I was one of the yeah I was the CEO of it. Yeah, well, yeah. One, okay, so one you were, you were the leader of that company essentially. And eventually, yeah. I mean, how does, do you, how does the perspective that you had from the military, from, from West Point, from your time in the army, how did that shape your perspective as, as a business leader? Yeah. Well, listen, the, I mean, it was,
2: it was the, it was the foundation because you learned the basic things about caring for people. Uh, but then I learned those various lessons over and over again. And, and, and in the book, I talk about, you know, there's so many things written on leadership. And I said, you know, there's, despite all this written about leadership, it's kind of ambiguous. If you ask 10 people what leadership is, they'd have different uh, definitions, you know? And, yes. and so I, I talked about four things that for me have defined the leaders I've most admired uh, and I think are core to the being the kind of leader I think uh, America needs, but but we need in general and the the one was vision, you know. You need to know where your you, leaders need to be able to take people where, 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 where they need to go. So in other words, you have a you need to have a sense whether it's your platoon into a mission, or whether it's a company uh, into a changing marketplace, or whether it's America into a hmm. uh, you know a very uh, dynamic, chaotic world. Hmm. So that's obvious, but you need courage too. And courage isn't the kind of courage that you you particularly uh, demonstrated on the battlefield in your platoon. I mean that is the courage when we think of courage, but there's courage to make hard choices. There's courage to be true to yourself. Um, there's courage to speak truth to power, even though that may in some instances result in and you losing, losing yeah. a, a, an election or losing your job or whatever it is. So, so courage is, I think, a second part. And, and in the end, people want to know that their leaders are going to stand and put themselves in personal peril. The third thing we sort of talked about was uh, the, uh, the the notion of humility. So the, the leadership, I think, requires you to know that you don't have all the answers and you're drawing on others, but humility also gives you the capacity to fail and learn from it and then evolve and grow. Because if you have humility, you know you're, you know you're fallible and you know you're going to make mistakes and making mistakes is part of being a good leader as long as you own the mistakes, confront them and, and, and learn as a result of it. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth thing, which is the one I think we learned in the military, is about servant leadership, caring. you got to care about people. Leadership is not about you. And I tell that story, which is for any military person, it's such an obvious story. But for, for lots of people, it's not, which is when you're done with a long road march, you know, uh, and you're out in the field, you, you stop and everybody's – you check everybody's feet for blisters. Because mm-hmm. if you get a blister, it gets infected, as you know, you're, you're, you're stuck. Mm -hmm. And I just told the story of how my platoon sergeant and I would always do that for everybody in the platoon or the squad leaders would do that. And we would double check it before we would sit down and have, take off our boots and change our socks and check for blisters or you, you know, in the mess hall, um, you know, who goes first, the platoon leader, doesn't go first. It's the troops that go first. And then the platoon leader and the platoon sergeant must those things seem so basic to you and, and to me, but they're not basic. They're not basic in, in, in much of society. Leaders eat last. It's not about you. It's about others. And that's, you know, to, to answer your question in a roundabout way, that's the lesson from the military that I took most to heart. And I've, I've tried to not, not, not perfectly, but I've tried to always be an example of that in in my leadership.
0: Well, you know, what's fascinating about that, Dave, and and by the way, I completely agree. Um, but Boy, you got your work cut out for you in Washington when you get there (laughs) (laughs) because there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of people uh, that don't think that, 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 that put themselves first. And by the way, like when you're campaigning, like, of course, like you're the guy that's on the ticket. You know, you're telling your story. You're trying to sell yourself and sway voters. So I understand that. But it is it's a tough town to be in and be and be a servant leader. Are you afraid that when you get down there because i believe it's just a matter of when dave um but when when you get down there you think you're gonna be able to hold on to that you think you'll let that town change you well you know listen
2: i i um i hope uh that uh, if i ever uh go to washington in some whatever capacity it is i hope that i'm far enough along in my life uh, to be able to lean on the lessons and the principles and the values that that, that kind of got me here, and uh, you know, it it uh, it comes with motivation. Like, what 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 is this all about? So, in my last, you know, in my Senate run, I didn't wake up one morning and say, "God, I'm never gonna, I'm not gonna be fulfilled as a human if I don't <laughs> if I don't become the junior senator for Pennsylvania." Like, yeah. I, that never, that never occurred to me. I never had that as my goal. Like being, you know, that's in some ways it's a it's 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 a tough job, as, as
0: you're saying. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was exactly. never
2: a goal. The goal was, hey, the country is headed in the wrong direction, you know. And and I've been blessed, you know, I've been privileged to have these great experiences and to have lived a really uh, blessed life. Hey, can I do something about that? So, if your motivation is to do something about it, then I think it's hard to get captured by. The whatever, because you're not going to be part of the whatever. You're going to change things. And if you can't change things, you don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I honestly believe. And and whether I could change things, if I got to Washington, would, you know, I I guess, you know, what we'd have to see um, in any, again, in any capacity, elected or appointed or whatever. But if you start with the idea that, you know, America is special. And that we all have an obligation. You know, there's this great quote I, I talk in the book about William F. Buckley, who who you, you and I both admire as a great conservative, mm-hmm. but he talks about citizenship. Citizenship is a privilege. We all are blessed to be in part of this country, but it's a responsibility. So like, it's like the, you know, you run to the guns when, when the country needs you, you try to do your part. And, uh, you know, when I, when I decided to run and you've, you've experienced this with your, with your own run, people say, why the hell? <laughs> Would you ever put yourself in that? It's so nasty. It is. <laughs> and and yeah. I I asked the simple question. I said, well, if not us, not me, then, then whom? If people that have been blessed
0: exactly. and don't
2: need the job, you know, and and aren't looking at it as, a, as, a, as an opportunity for
0: self-aggrandization,
2: if people like us don't consider it and do it, then who will? And so that's, that's how I've thought about it.
0: If good people don't run, bad people fill the vacuum. And it's It's just, and, and, and we can't have that. That's not good for the country. Um, you, you talk about Dave, you know, courage being an important principle for leadership that you've learned. Um, and I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, you know what else requires an immense amount of courage? Being married with all the daughters that you have. <laughs> I yeah. saw like this was something that I think is is remarkable. Is I saw this like Adina, who by the way is a force of nature, who's, is your Indeed. amazing wife. Um, yeah she i saw this thing on instagram that she posted of you like you all went to like a harry styles concert and by the way yeah. like my my kid my girls love harry styles too i don't really know who he is but whatever uh, but she's posts this story on instagram and it's just her with a camera going from one girl to the next and how many girls how many girls you have in your how many t- yeah okay so yeah a lot of courage required there but she's just going right down the line of all your daughters who are clearly having the times of their lives <laughs> dancing like crazy and it ends on you and I'm like, that that requires some real courage. You're just standing. You're just you're just standing there like a dad, just like,
2: yeah. It, 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 no, it's, it reminds me. We we had we got a we got an initial puppy during COVID, and then like two years later, out of like craziness, we decided to get a second puppy. And the look in my face, um, with, with in that con in that uh, concert. Is like the look of the of the first puppy when we
0: showed up with the second puppy. <laughs> like, what are you thinking?
2: What are you thinking?
0: Yeah. I mean, is Nobody, that part of, but, is is that part of it, Dave? You've got you've got it. six daughters. They're going to grow up in this country. Yeah. Are you afraid for their future? Yeah, absolutely.
2: And I I'm afraid for their future. I'm afraid that we're headed down a, a, a dangerous path. And I'm afraid uh, that you know people who. Should be called to serve or not are not uh, serving for the reasons we've talked about. I understand the logic of people not doing it, but uh, the way people ask me what was it like, and I, again, I feel like I'm talking to somebody who knows this. But if you, you remember the the movie Gladiator, where Russell Crowe is in the middle of the arena, and there's all these people, you know, cheering him, but there's also those people throwing things at him, and like you know, yeah. so you're in the arena, you're by yourself, and then you got your sword, and then all of a sudden the trap door comes up, and there's a tiger. <laughs> and so then you, you got to kill the tiger. Then the next thing you know, there's a chariot. And that's the way politics is. You are in the arena. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a privilege to be in the arena, but it's not it's not for the faint of heart. And um, so I know there's a burden and I, I try to do everything I can to make sure there's no burden on my family or anything by making this choice. But I, I honestly think it's an honor to – it was an honor in my case to, to run. And um, I have no regrets about it because I think good people need to – do all they can.
0: Well, I, you know, you talk. I mean, so much about, and in this book, like I told you, is like is a blueprint. It's a way ahead for America, and and you talk about um, like a lot of very important, you know, policy issues that are some of the greatest debates of our of our time, Dave, and and one of which is the idea of you know bringing jobs back to america and keeping jobs here in america building back our manufacturing base and our industrial base uh and that is very that is a top issue in pennsylvania as you know yeah um but the idea that like free trade comes with a a lot of pretty amazing things like obviously we, we experience in this country an economic boom because of, of free trade i think it's made our some fairly strong alliances with other nations geopolitically all across the world um But you talk in this book about walking the fine line and the importance of free trade, but not at the expense of the American working man and woman. And that is so important that we embrace, I think, embrace free trade, but also fair trade. Um, How how do you plan on taking that fight to Washington when you get there? Well, I think, you know, this is where I
2: give President Trump a lot of credit. I think he put his finger on that challenge, which is that the promise of globalization or free trade hadn't, mm-hmm. you know, hadn't delivered for a number of Americans. And I'm not talking a small number. I'm talking half of half of America. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and so uh, and then I think a, a, a similar cousin of the problem of globalization is, is China. And, you know, listen, you can start with some basic things, which is there was a there was a, a free trade ideology, an orthodoxy, that was to an extreme, and it missed some basic concepts. So mm-hmm. if anyone's questioning that, just ask yourself the question, how is it possible—we all saw this front and center during COVID—how is it possible that the entire semiconductor industry is offshore and that 90 percent of the semiconductors <laughs> we need are manufactured 90 miles from mainland China? <laughs> it's, it's, it's... Does anybody think that makes sense? Right? I mean, right, on national security terms, on economic, you know, vitality for America, it makes no sense. Same with pharmaceuticals. I, I, I have to confess to you, I did not know or understand until COVID happened how dependent we were on China for for pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So, so you just have to pick examples like that. Those aren't small examples to just show how ridiculous um, the um, free trade orthodoxy had pushed us down a path where. We were making decisions as a country that made absolutely no sense strategically. So that's the starting point. The second principle, which I think is really critical, and um, uh, I, again, Bob Lightheiser, who was President Trump's trade representative, I think, is the notion of reciprocity. Hmm. And with the WTO accession of China and our trade relations, that notion of reciprocity—you hear that word thrown around—but it's not happening hmm. in many of our trade relationships. Certainly with China, there's not reciprocity, and so. Um, If we're going to give access to U.S. markets in in our trade uh, relationships, we need to have fair opportunity in in their markets. So that's that's what fair trade means, And that's not happening. And then the third piece of the trade orthodoxy, which um, I think is called into question, is listen, I'm not a fan. I'm not in favor of tariffs as a general rule. Mm -hmm. But I think there there are instances, and I think China in the uh, Trump administration was an example of where we can use tariffs to sort of right the ship and rebalance trade relations as a way to get geopolitical and and, uh, negotiating advantage. So those three things I just said are basic premises that are different than what the free trade orthodoxy has been. And if we do those things differently and begin to strategically decouple from China and elsewhere, that's going to have a huge impact for manufacturing jobs in America. We can't be non-competitive, by the way. We have to still be efficient, market-driven businesses so we can't subsidize things like unfortunately the Biden administration is doing in so many ways but we can ensure that uh, the American worker gets a fair shot and if the American worker gets a fair shot they're gonna win a lot more than they lose and that hasn't happened uh, in the decades preceding 2016 I think I think we're on a reset now but it took a big took a big uh, redirection uh, that I I think President Trump tapped into uh,
0: very wisely I mean, I totally agree. And I mean, there's so many aspects of this book that that just dovetail perfectly from an economic and national security standpoint with Trump populism, Dave, and really the blending of, you know, the blending of more traditional conservative positions with Trump populism to plot a way ahead. You talk about COVID and you talk about all of these things that COVID revealed and the risks that I think you know, our, that our country was exposed to in China, you talk about the economic implications of, of free trade arrangements with China and maybe the fact that China is exploiting, definitely exploiting that relationship. But from a national security standpoint, we have critical aspects of our supply chain almost exclusively made in China. You've got Apple computers making iPhones in China. You've got rare earth metals and rare earth minerals being mined in China, by and large, that are are mostly through child slave labor in order for us to embrace the green energy, renewable energy uh, that the Biden administration is pushing so much. It almost empowers China, what well, does empower China, because most of that stuff is mined over there. So from a national security standpoint, Dave, how how do we decouple from, from China in that way? Because I do think, and you addressed it some in this book, but I do think that that has profound national security implications for our country, not just now, but moving forward as well. Yeah, I think it's uh,
2: it's a great question. I think it starts with a point I try to make in the in the, in the book, and there's a chapter about technology leadership. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you read what's going on with technology, it it should scare you to death because (laughs) technology and innovation have been what has made America the the superpower in the world. We've always been on the forefront of that. And our economic model um, is failing, is failing us. And the best example of how it's failing us is uh, there's just a report that came out. It was in The Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago from an Australian think tank. And it identified 44 technologies that are critical to the economic vitality, but also the national security uh, of a country today. And um, and of those 44 technologies, China's in the lead in 37. Ugh. This is satellite, artificial intelligence, quantum science. And that's that's unacceptable. It is. And the, and the reason uh, is that we have not had a dedicated strategy. China has a plan for global dominance, and for uh, per, uh, perpetuating a techno-authoritarian model. Hmm. They're, they're very explicit in their plans. They if you are. go back to the, the, the various Congresses, you'll see technology leadership in East, and what's different now, Sean, is that convergence of technology, economic well-being, and national security is, is at all new levels, 5G. You can't think of 5G without thinking about economic growth and national security at the same time. These technologies are one and the same for economic success, and they're mostly zero-sum. So once you get a predominant position, it's hard for other countries to break in. So we need a plan for promoting those technologies in a way that's not the Chinese model, which is state-owned enterprises. It's not the Democrats' model, which is industrial policy with a bunch of uh, of, of uh, directives around social engineering and climate <laughs> right. change. right. right. It's a it's a it's a uh, approach uh, for innovation policy that that's driven by free markets principles, but helps direct capital to those areas where we need to have big investment to win. And uh, and we don't have a plan for that. And that's what uh, one of the things the book tries to do. And in it, you know, to your point about traditional conservatism and and uh, and populism, I'm trying to say, stop saying this or that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: That's not the way to think about it. You know, we're, we're in a new world where there's a set of realities we have to embrace. And the anger people feel with the system leaving them behind that's driving populism. Hey, by the way, they have a point. They have a right to be angry, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that one section you may recall, which says, what would Milton Friedman think? And I talk about how Milton Friedman, who, as you know, is the is the is the dean of free market conservatism. Amazing. amazing. What what would Milton Friedman think about what I'm saying about these technology policies? And I don't really know what Milton Friedman is saying. But my question to Milton Friedman is when you're behind in 37 of 44 technologies, it's going to determine leadership in the world. (laughs) What are you gonna do, right? Yeah. So, um, so anyway, that's uh, sorry, a long-winded approach, but uh, that's what I'm trying to do with the book.
0: Well, I mean, it's clear as day, and and you talk about speaking of technology, the idea of data, right? The data is almost like a a currency today that's largely unregulated here and untapped in our in our country. We don't really know what to do with it, but China seems to have a goal, uh, at least a large scale global goal of sucking up as much as much american data as possible and i'm sure you saw the spy balloon that basically floated from the west coast to the east coast and wasn't shot down until it was over the carolina somewhere in the atlantic ocean uh but the idea that that spy the chinese spy balloon was sucking up as much american data as humanly possible we the, the debate right now if you turn on fox news is is and I think there's a bill on the Senate floor about this, Dave, about the uh, should we ban TikTok or not? And right. I think well, the Chinese spy balloon was pretty bad, but you got TikTok on your phone. It's basically like having a spy balloon on every American <laughs> phone in the entire country. So yeah. how do we how do we I mean, my God, it just feels like we're like you mentioned it, like being behind the power curve here to China. China has a plan. We don't. Right. Well, listen, I say there's a couple of different
2: dimensions of this data is data is so important because data gives insight to others um and you you make yourself vulnerable the more of, of your data is available so mm. if you know a bunch of soldiers are on their fitbits in afghanistan and uh the chinese have uh access to that data that's that's important information right yes, so um, yes. so and and if and if if it gives you a little bit of an eerie feeling when you google something like uh, yeah you want to buy a new set of sneakers and then every feed you get on your email and your um, your social media for that point forward includes an advertisement for sneakers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so so this data is um, it, it's it makes us all vulnerable and there's no controls whatsoever. There's no privacy. Um, the social media companies have access. TikTok has access. What's interesting uh, to, to this is um, TikTok has no restrictions on how, how children access it in the United States. There's all sorts of restrictions on how children access TikTok in, Ch- in China, yes. right? So one thing is, is is personal privacy and vulnerability. The second is that um, data is a strategic asset. You know, The Economist had this article recently that said d- data is the new oil. It's not the new oil. It's, it's strategic like oil, but oil, once you use it, is gone, Data can be used over and over again, and the best example of the power of data is the collaboration that happened with the COVID um, vaccines. So all the pharmaceutical companies came together and they shared their data, and we made huge strides under warp speed that would have never happened if, without that data sharing. And incidentally, the Chinese didn't share their data. Hmm. And China has complete control over its data of its citizens, which is terrible from a human liberty perspective but very valuable from an innovation perspective. So that's the second thing that we have to have a framework for dealing with. The third thing, and I know you feel this as a a guy with kids and as as, as someone who's uh, focused on ensuring that we have a marketplace of ideas, social media has completely hijacked our ability to have an objective, um, fact-based discourse Hmm. in our country. The liberal media combined with the social media uh, uh, leaning to the left allows things to happen like we can't have a meaningful discussion until right now
1: Hmm. about
2: the origins of COVID. Oh, this is breakthrough thinking that COVID which originated in Wuhan might be connected to the lab that does experiments (laughs) in Wuhan. The fact that that was suppressed is madness. (laughs) The same with the Hunter Biden laptop, all these things. So we don't have a meaningful um, exchange of ideas anymore when so many of us are dependent on, um, on social media. So, so so this is one of those cases where you say the blending of populism and traditional conservatism. I try to call out my book. Listen, I'm going to say something right now that's different from con- traditional conservatism. Traditional conservatism, hands off. Government does get right. involved. Right. I mostly agree with that. More government is bad. Less government good. Most of the time, like in the fracking industry, less government is, is uh, better. But on big tech, this is where I think we need more government involvement to make sure that the social media companies are held accountable for the bias that exists across those platforms. And, uh, and that's a sensitive issue. But that in technology policy, are the two areas where I think the government needs to play a more uh, aggressive role to protect our interests.
0: I mean I totally agree especially with regard I mean yes generally speaking I want the government out of every aspect of our lives but you've got these huge companies like global companies and and this is the thing that bothers me about it Dave and you have I don't want to even call out like a like somebody like Google cuz Google does lots of great things but they're but they're they're founded here in America yet they have interests all over the world and a huge market in China and half the time I wonder with some of their their global policies that come out do they even recognize that they're a country that is based and founded in America America that should be focused on American primacy. And so some of these companies have just gotten so big, the monopolistic tendencies therein are harmful no, to I, I the agree average with American.
2: You. I agree with you. And listen, this is, I, I think, an area like the thing about a campaign is you get 30 seconds. The <laughs> thing about a book is you get to talk about this. But mm-hmm. I think you're right. And take Google as an example. I, I you know, I, I agree with you. Google's created lots of jobs. But, but two things that I would say are really problematic one is if you remember project maven was that's right? exactly what i was thinking about yes right. so so tech. most of these tech companies microsoft's an example as uh, a is a um example the other way but most of mm-hmm. these big tech companies uh do not collaborate with the pentagon that's changing a little bit but they've had a and the reason is that their workers um the tech workers don't want to be associated with with work in defense i think that's unacceptable I right if too. you look at our success in the Cold War. The merger of America, American industry with uh, defense spending, was how we made, had the success we had. And the, these companies are American companies first. And I think the idea that they're not collaborating or willing to collaborate with the U.S. military in pursuit of uh, military interests—that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, and is something that should be. You know should be recognized and called out and the benefits of being a, an american company maybe should go to companies that won't support america right that's one yes, right yes. the second is and you know i'm i've done business around the globe and in the case of china um you know i think we do need and i lay out a whole chapter in the book around a holistic uh plan whole of nation strategy for dealing with china strategic decoupling holding China accountable for everything from the Wuhan virus to its thievery to human rights abuses, Um, coordinating with our allies in a very thoughtful way about how we uh, pursue U.S. interests by partnering with them. Some of those allies have our most significant intel. support. But I also say we need an outbound investment process to review investments. So um, a good Mm -hmm. example of this, which I can't believe this is still the case, Sean, but it is, after all this talk about China, after all that we know, there are still comp- investment companies in the United States, Silicon Valley companies, that are investing in companies in China that are part of or work with the Chinese military, the PLA. Wow. Wow. Right? So artificial intelligence companies, are investing in China, their main customer is the PLA. That's unacceptable. It is. It should be obvious To a U.S. company that we shouldn't do, but we should make it more obvious by restricting it. Yes. And and we should have an outbound, I don't know, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with CFIUS, which is the review we do of investments in the country. Mm -hmm. I think we should have a similar review of investments that go outside the country to places like China, um, and probably some other countries where it poses any risk to U.S. interests. Why don't we? I I mean, that that is, I'm flabbergasted by that. Yeah, it's 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 an obvious thing. It's an obvious thing. And, uh, there's some in, on Capitol Hill talking about it, but, you know, this is where, um, when I ran for the Senate in 2022, I was excited because I think I, as a, someone who's been in the military, served at the highest levels of business and and been in government, you know, to, to tackle these issues, you need confidence and confidence comes from being able to see all the different dimensions of a problem and then shooting, a you know, shooting a direction that, that, that makes sense. And, uh, you know, I didn't. I sadly, wasn't able to do that as uh, because I lost the race. But I'm trying to do that with this book. And if you know, if the book was wildly successful, in my mind, what that would mean is that people talk about it, and mm-hmm. and and this forces people to sort of engage on a, a possible agenda. Maybe it's this agenda, maybe it's another one. But the thing I'm convinced about, and I'm not a political pundit. I don't. I'm convinced we're not going to change the country. As Republicans, unless we win elections <laughs> exactly. and we're not going to win elections unless we have a vision and plan for the future, we're not going to win elections looking backwards. We're going to win elections looking forwards. And uh, that's what I'm, I'm trying to do with the book.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, look, leadership one on one. We talked about it a little bit during this interview. Leaders project a vision on the horizon and they bring people with them in, in support <laughs> of that vision. And so, I, I mean, I got to ask before I let you go, and I want to be respectful of your time because you've given me a lot of it. What's next for you, Dave? I mean, and and give us a sense of what the heck is going on in Pennsylvania. Like if Fetterman, where is he? What's the process? I mean, like, and where's your head at with the next cycle? Yeah, well, you know, it's,
2: uh, you know, I've talked about this. You can't, you know, you can't do what I've done, which is quit your job. You know, throw yourself into a Senate race because you think the country's going in the wrong direction. And if you fall 900 votes short, say, oh, I was just kidding. Right. So so the motivation to serve, the motivation to help our country is is strong. And I feel more strong, honestly, more strong now than I did when I ran. Mm -hmm. How to best serve? I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure. As a family, we haven't decided one way would be to run for the Senate um, uh, for uh, Senator Casey's seat, which is, um, which he currently, uh, holds, which would be 24. I don't know, uh, about Senator Fetterman. I, you know, no one can watch what's happening with, with him and not feel, you know, like in your heart, like pray for that family. I agree. He's yeah. obviously very sick. Yep. Um, at, at the same time, you know, uh, I think as a, as a practical matter, it raises legitimate questions that do we know everything <laughs> as voters, in november and you know it also just is emblematic this is the first time in 76 years we've had two democratic senators for pennsylvania that's that's pennsylvanians deserve better than that in my opinion and so um you know we're thinking about that but uh but we're we're praying about it but we're not gonna make any decisions anytime soon and we're trying to you know hopefully make this a successful book and that would be for me a, a service if i could do that and do it well
0: well phase one of the operation before dave decides if he's gonna (laughs) run is go get this book superpower imperil is a great book if you're a republican that's interested in the future of the country and a roadmap to to take us to take us there get the book it's great i'm sure you can get it wherever books are sold and we'll be following you dave i mean you ran a great a great campaign um and thank you for coming on the uh, on, hey, on the battleground, man. Thank you. To I, you, I appreciate. It. I, I uh,
2: the, the, you can buy the book if you can just go to Dave McCormick Book. dot com, and uh, that'll take you right to the Amazon link. And uh, listen, it's uh, it's a it was a labor of love in the sense that uh, it's all about trying to you know get the country moving in the right direction. And uh, I'm really grateful to you. I'm excited about this podcast. Uh, I've listened to a number <laughs> of them, and they're great. and uh, And you're a, a great person to do it. Thanks, Dave. As as I said, you're a great patriot, and you know this stuff. But more than that, you really are you are focused on solutions to make our country better. And uh, you know, rhetoric's great, but we need solutions. And so, thanks for what you're doing.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Good luck, man. And you know, anytime you need anything, you know where to find me. All right. See you soon. Thank you. See you, Dave. All right, everybody. That is a wrap. Thank you for joining the Battleground Podcast. Dave McCormick's an impressive guy, right? You know, you heard a lot about him on on the Senate trail, right? Lots of television ads, I think over 300 million dollars of ads were running that race. So you hear lots of things, but it's sort of great to cut through that noise and learn about who the guy really is. He's impressive. In this book, Superpower and Peril, it really, really is a good book. I've read it cover to cover. Um, if you're interested, you know, not just in Dave's story, but in substantive ideas in a plan to really take this country to the next level, you got to read this book. In the meantime... Continue to recommend this podcast to other people. You're the reason why we're doing this. I've got a brand new website up, officialseanparnell.com. I've got Battleground Apparel on that website. I've got exclusive content on my YouTube channel and now on my Rumble channel, which are both growing like gangbusters. We love having you there. Um, And subscribe to the podcast again, wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thank you so much for listening. God bless you all. And God bless this amazing country that we call home. Take care. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
1: A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you.